science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. We are your hosts, Aaron Barker. And Liz Neely. And this week, we are presenting stories about faith, skepticism, and the unknown. This week's episode is A Leap of Faith. Yes. Have you all enjoyed my extremely clever leap year pun today? <laughs> I actually, I didn't get, I didn't know it was a pun until you told me. <laughs> oh, breaking my heart, Liz Neely. <laughs> I think Full my... disclosure to everyone, I do not understand leap year or why it exists, which I guess is how some people feel about faith, so... <laughs> All right. I know that some of members of our team have tried to explain leap years to you on Slack. Would you like another attempt at it from me? Do you think you can be the one who succeeds? I am ready to step up to this challenge. All right. All right. Hit me so, with it. Aaron, the solar mm -hmm. system does not care about puny humans and our timekeeping traditions, right? With you so far. <laughs> okay. So... The orbits and cycles of planetary bodies do not align with our tidy little timekeeping systems. Okay. All right. So we want to like divide up a year into a specific number of days, but the planets and the sun <laughs> don't want to work with us on this. So it means that over time, if we just kept saying like, this is a day, this is a day, this is a day, and there's only 360 of them in a year, that over time we would see drift. Right. So like December 25th would start happening in the spring or in the summer. So in order to keep us from drifting, we insert extra days so that we can keep having like our winter holidays in the winter seasons. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was a valiant effort. <laughs> OK. All right. So here's the, the quick way of remembering it. Leap years are called intercalary years. The extra days occur in each year, which is an integer multiple of four, except for years evenly divisible by 100, which oh, are not no, leap Liz. years unless they're evenly <laughs> divisible by 400. <laughs> that got so much worse. <laughs> Look, time well, is a human construct. <laughs> what is right. time? Wow. Well, I won't be able to get anything done for the rest of the day, so... <laughs> How about some stories now? <laughs> I feel like I started off so well. All right. Our first story also starts off so well. It's from Len Kruger. It was recorded in October 2019 at Beer Baron Tavern in Washington, D.C. The theme of that night was Trick or Treat. So I was at a low point. It was Philadelphia in 1979. It was the summer after my senior year. And I hadn't graduated because I needed more credit, so I had to stay and do some bullshit independent study. <laughs> so I'm living in this rundown sublet with uh, you know torn, torn window shades and a broken doorbell. But the broken doorbell didn't matter because all my friends had already left. They had all graduated, so nobody would ever come to visit me anyway. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So I spent my, I'm painting a picture of despair here. So I, <laughs> I spent my evening sitting in this sweltering sublet listening to Philadelphia sports talk radio. 
um, on this piece of shit bicentennial transistor radio, uh, which had this like faded red, white, and blue painting on it. And um, every few days, the batteries would get weak, and it would get uh, the, the volume would go down and down, and eventually, I'd have to buy new batteries, which seemed like sort of a metaphor for my situation. <laughs> so. <laughs> Because I hadn't graduated on time, I kind of felt like a failure. And what even made me feel more like a failure was that my degree, the, the focus of my degree was material science, which was my father's field. And he was this world-renowned corrosion scientist. And in fact, that spring, I'd taken a course in his field on low-temperature metallic corrosion. And we learned about these things called poor bay diagrams, which was this diagram which would show you the phase of different metals in various uh, states of equilibrium and like the x-axis was pH and the y-axis was uh, voltage potential. And what made that especially resonant for me is my father actually knew this guy, Pourbet, Marcel Pourbet, the guy who invented this thing, and I had met the guy several times as a kid. So here I was, the son of this famous corrosion scientist who had actually met Pourbet. He was like the George Washington of low temperature metallic corrosion. <laughs> And I hadn't graduated on time. So my independent study was going very poorly because instead of doing it, I was procrastinating. And basically what I would do is spend my days sitting um, on a bench next to Benjamin Franklin in the middle of campus and reading what I thought were really cool and impressive books. And I would sort of hold them up like this, and I'd hope that people would see me reading these books and, and think, wow, look at that really cool guy reading those cool books. <laughs> and the ultimate fantasy, of course, was that... Um, all of a sudden, I'd hear, what are you reading? And I'd lower the book, and I'd see some beautiful woman, and you know, there'd be the start of this summer romance, you know, like in the movie Grease or something. <laughs> so that didn't work until one day, it kind of did. I'm reading this book called Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, this iconic counterculture novel about 800 pages long, a book that was described by the New York Times as bone-crushingly dense. <laughs> And all of a sudden, I hear this woman's voice say, what are you reading? And I lower the book, and there's this Japanese woman about my age with this look of total interest on her face, like she can't wait to hear what I have to say. And I say, oh, it's uh, Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. And she says, what's it about? And you know, I didn't know what it was about, so I was... <laughs> I read the back from the back cover. I'm looking at it. And it's oh, it's an immense synthesis of modern literature and modern science. <laughs> and she says, "Oh, that's really interesting." And then she says, "Have you ever felt lost, like like you don't know where you belong?" And I say, "Yeah, I guess. I don't know." <laughs> and then she tells me her name is Mashiko, and when she was growing up in Japan, she felt lost. And she even almost thought about killing herself. But then she met these people that changed her life and turned her around, and she was reborn. <laughs> now, at this point, I just want to stop and say, I may have been an idiot, but I wasn't stupid. And I knew that there was a certain cult trolling the campus, harvesting depressed college students. <laughs> but she seemed kind of nice, so I, we, we talked for a while. and. You know, she told me that she would be out uh, t until 9 or 10, or 10 at night, you know, talking to people. And I'm, I say, well, God, you know, it's kind of dangerous around here, West Philadelphia. Um, don't you worry about doing that? And she's like, I don't worry about it at all. God will take care of me. And, you know, what, what do you say to that? So 
Before she leaves, she asks me two questions. First, she asks me if I'll come to their house for dinner that night, and I say no. <laughs> and then she asks for my phone number and address. And for some reason, I give it to her. <laughs> and then she goes off. And then I have this moment of harsh self-realization. I know these people have these like built-in loser detectors, and they can sense the despair, the self-loathing. They can smell that sweet whiff of failure. And that was me. I was the low-hanging fruit. So over the next several weeks, she calls me just about every day, asking me to come to dinner at their house. And things are just going worse and worse for me. You know, it's it's like just there's nothing. I'm really lonely. I have very little human contact with anybody. And so one night it's 95 degrees outside and I'm sitting in my sweltering sublet and I say, what the hell? You know, it's just something to do. I'll go. So I start walking to the house, their house. And with each step, I'm getting more and more nervous. And you have to remember, this is the 70s, 1979. And in, in those days, cults were no joke. I mean, they were, they were pretty scary. I mean, you had Jim Jones. <laughs> you had Patty Hearst being kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. Um, there's actually a book now that's they call the 70s of the golden age of cults. <laughs> I was so fortunate to be alive at that time. Um, <laughs> so I get to the house. And it's, it's well lighted. Um, I walk in, and it's... It's kind of great. I mean, everybody's really happy to see me. There are all these people there like around my age, and they're all interested in what I have to say. They're super friendly. And we sit around in a circle, and Mashiko's you know, beaming that I'm there. She's delighted. So I'm sitting next to her, and we're sitting in a circle. And each new person, you know, each mark, is accompanied by their handler of the opposite sex. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody takes out a guitar, and they start singing songs. And they're not weird cult songs. They're songs like, If I Had a Hammer, and Michael Rode the Boat Ashore, and stuff like that. And I'm, you know, I was like, this, this, isn't, this isn't so bad. So then we go around the circle, and we have to introduce ourselves and say what our favorite drink is, only it can't be alcoholic. So they get to me, and I say, my name is Len, and my favorite drink is, I don't know, tea. And everybody's like, oh, tea, that's so great, tea, we love tea. <laughs> and then someone says, well, what kind of tea do you like, oolong or ginseng? And I say, I, I don't know, Lipton. And they're <laughs> And they're like, oh, Lipton, we love Lipton. Lipton's great. <laughs> so I can smell the, these wonderful smells coming from the kitchen of this home-cooked meal. I haven't had a home-cooked meal in so long. And I'm thinking, you know, this, this isn't Jim Jones. This isn't Jonestown. This isn't, you know, the Seminese Liberation Army. This isn't that bad, you know. <laughs> and then the ground shifted. Um, this guy comes out. He's like their minister. Uh, of, the, of the house. And he's older than everybody else. He's in his 40s. And he announces that um, before we get our physical nourishment, we're going to go upstairs for some spiritual nourishment. And then he sort of goes around the room and, in, and says hello to each new person. He comes to me and he says, oh, you're, you're a student at the university? I said, yeah. He says, what's your major? I said, applied science. He goes, oh, science, fantastic. He says, you know, when we go upstairs, I'm going to prove to you empirically and mathematically that our leader of, of our whole group is the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I say, okay, <laughs> look, look, 
look forward to that. So, we go upstairs, and Mashiko's right by my side, and um, we go into this room, and it's sort of festooned with these balloons and streamers, and I, I say to Mashiko, oh, is it somebody's birthday? And she goes, no, it's a rebirth day. <laughs> so we sit in this, these seats, and this minister guy starts this long lecture about their whole ideology or whatever, and it's really complicated. I mean, the, the blackboard fills up with arrows and charts and all this stuff, and it, it just kind of means nothing. And um, then he gets to the part where he's going to prove to us empirically and mathematically that um, their leader is the second coming of Jesus Christ. So what he does is he draws two timelines on the blackboard. The top, top, the top timeline goes from the beginning of the world to Jesus, and then the bottom timeline is from Jesus to their leader, who was born like in the 30s or something. And then because he can draw a straight perpendicular line from one to the other, that proves that. <laughs> and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, this looks like some fucked up poor bay diagram <laughs> where the scale on the x-axis is, is all completely wrong and it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so I say, well, wait, I don't understand because, I mean, there's billions of years from the beginning of the world to Jesus and then, you know, maybe 2,000 between Jesus and your leader. So I don't understand why those two lines are the same length. And he says, well, no, no, we, we don't believe the world is billions of years old. We believe the world is 10,000 years old. So, I, you know, it's like creationism. So I say... Well, still, it's 10,000 versus, like, 2,000. <laughs> and he kept saying, no, but see, it's a straight line. See? See? He keeps, you know. And at that point, the dinner bell rings. And he says, okay, most of us are going to go down for dinner. But you, I want you to stay a little longer because you need a little more spiritual nourishment. So everybody, all the other new people go down to eat dinner, and then I say to him, you know, trying to be a smartest, I guess I say, so are you saying that the top line is on a logarithmic scale? <laughs> and he says, you know, you can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. You have to leave immediately. And um, Mashiko's looking like kind of really nervous, not happy. And a bunch of the guys sort of, like, they get me up. And uh, I mean, they're not, they're not like physically removing me, but they're sort of accompanying me. It's kind of like they're excising this cancerous cell. <laughs> and um, one of the guys turns to me with this big smile on his face and says, you must be a minister of Satan. <laughs> <laughs> but we like that because it makes us stronger. So I go out into the 95 degree night, and I mean, on the one hand, I felt kind of triumphant that I, I felt was proud of my little, you know, timeline thing, and the fact that I was that they, they gave up on even trying to brainwash me. Uh, on the other hand, I felt kind of bad about Mashiko, and I hoped she wasn't going to get in trouble for bringing me in. And you know, then it, it kind of hit me that there was nothing benign about this group at all, despite the the folk songs and the uh, camaraderie and the dinner and all that stuff. I mean, there was something pretty, uh, very disturbing about it. Um, so I went back to my 
rundown, yet deluxe sublet be fit for a minister of Satan. <laughs> and I turned on my bicentennial transistor radio, but the battery was dead. Thank you. That was Len Kruger. Len is a writer and a storyteller. He recently retired from the Congressional Research Service at the Library of Congress, where he was a specialist in science and technology policy. Len has performed stories all over stages with local storytelling groups such as Story District, The Moth, and Better Said Than Done. His short fiction has appeared in numerous publications, including Zotrope, All Story, The Barcelona Review, and Gargoyle. He has a Bachelor of Applied Science and a Bachelor of Arts degrees from the University of Pennsylvania and an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Maryland. Go Terps! <laughs> I love this story from Lynn. It's so funny. It was such, me up. It was amazing to see live. We have some other stories on the podcast that have been about uh, faith and religion and things like that before. We have both pro-faith and anti-faith stories, stories about people leaving faith and, and returning to it and all sorts of combinations. Obviously, at Story Collider, we think all of these stories are valid. Mm -hmm. uh, we have many stories of folks who have gone on to study evolution after growing mm -hmm. up in religious households. Uh, there's one from Adam Andis in our evolution episode, one from Jennifer Colburn in Leaving Home. One of my favorites is puppeteer Raymond Carr's story from our Moments of Truth episode. <laughs> there are dinosaur puppets involved, which how can you go wrong with that? <laughs> and some of our uh, more pro-faith stories, I would say, are Heather Berlin's beautiful story about you know dealing with the death of a loved one as a scientist and, mm -hmm. and trying to reconcile her lack of belief in afterlife with this experience. So there's... Uh, Marcelo Ardon Seyal's beautiful story from our oh, yeah. Boiling Points episode. Um, Marcelo is a dear friend of Story Collider, and that story, I think, is particularly close to my heart. So mm -hmm. if you are interested in these stories today, consider checking some of those out. I love that Erin has this encyclopedic knowledge of our back catalog and can create these linkages with all these stories that we've collected over time. Um, if you are also interested in getting a little intellectual with this, uh, there is an essay that I keep talking about. It's called A Revolution in Time by Paul Cosman in Aeon Magazine. And it's about the idea that people didn't start predicting the end of days, the end of time, until timekeeping became universal and there were uh, calendar years, numerical years, just marching on to infinity. Uh, so it says, basically, once local and irregular timekeeping became universal and linear in 311 BCE, history would never be the same. Oh, how often do you get to write history would never be the same? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> some of us like cliches more than others. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we have another story? Let's do it. Our next story today is from Manny Garcia. It was recorded in December 2019 at the Tank Theater in New York City. The theme that night was Baby It's Cold Outside. Mm -hmm. 
So it was 2001, somewhere in Connecticut. Can't remember where. But I was really excited because I was being invited to the home of a young deaf man who's 17 years old. Um, who I was fluent in sign language. I was doing missionary work as a Jehovah's Witness. I had spent my entire life at that point as a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and so I was 28 years old. I was good at what I did. I really believed in it. Uh, it was it was everything to me. I'm one of those people that, as a kid, would bring home the the dogs and the cats and the animals, and my parents were always like, "Oh my God, not again!" So I, I I I either do something completely or I don't do it. That's the way I am. So I was really excited. I didn't have to knock on his door and get rejected. He invited me. When I met him, um, he he looked like he had been through some stuff. So he invited me in. We sat down, and I got to know him a little bit. And what he told me was, I've been uh, in recovery for about a year. I've had a serious drug addiction for many years. Uh, actually, my mom, who's walking around behind us looking angry, she got me addicted to drugs. And she's still using. And she actually is trying to get me out of recovery. She's jealous. Um, and so I'm trying to rebuild my life. It's very difficult. I've been through a lot. I've hurt a lot of people. And I think I'm to the point now where I would like to be close to God. So I invited you here to find out if that was possible. All right, so that, that, that was my thing. Okay, yeah, if we could do this, right? And, and I had my Bible with me. And right away I was like, okay, comfort scriptures, right? Uh, love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah, that's a good one, right? Mm. God is love. With God, nothing is impossible. And so we, we started having this really meaningful conversation. And I could feel our hearts warming together. We have a real connection forming. You ever have that connection with a person where it's just you and them, and it's real? The honesty is real. The intent is real. The connection is real. And so I felt very, very good in that moment. I felt like I was doing what, what I love to do, what I was here for. I was good at it. And I could really make a difference in this person's life. Then he said, I have one more question for you. Uh, I'm gay. Can I still be close to God? So I had my Bible. I didn't look it up so quickly this time. But the Bible that Jehovah's Witnesses use has an index in the back where you can look up words. So I'm looking for the word unnatural. Right? And I find it. That leads me to 1 Corinthians something. Right? And then you have a cross-reference, so that'll, that'll tell you scriptures that are like the other. Unnatural wasn't bad enough, so I had to go for something worse. Um, so I have depraved, unnatural. Right? So I, I proceed to share these scriptures with him about gay people being unnatural. That lifestyle is unnatural. Uh, it's depraved, blah, blah, blah. And when you talk to deaf people, you, you look them in the eye. Unlike hearing people, when you say something to somebody that you know will hurt them, you can look away and just say it. With a deaf person, this style of communication is visual, so you have to look at the person. And I can swear to this day that when that man looked me in the eye, I could hear his heart breaking, this crack. Right? So our beautiful moment that I had just described, it faded quickly. And, and it... When I left there, I was different. It didn't feel right, what I had done. And, it, and I, just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't make sense of it. I had to search my soul because I, I believed 
everything that I was raised to believe. It made sense to me. It was the only truth that I knew. But this breaking someone's heart over their identity, withholding love from a person for their, it just didn't make sense to me. It didn't feel right. Um, and I unraveled pretty quickly. And a year, about a year later, I got in my car and I drove away and I left. So I have to, I have to explain what it means when you leave as a Jehovah's Witness. Your entire social world, everything that you do is about being a Jehovah's Witness. Those are your friends, your family. You don't hang out with other people. They're called worldly people. You have no contact with the outside world um, other than you go to work and you go to school and you look normal, but you act really strange, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I, I was leaving everything. This was August 1st, 2002. I was 29 years old, everything. I was married. I had been married for six years at that point. Um, all my family was Jehovah's Witnesses, all my friends. And so I was going into an unknown. And I had, I had no plan. I just left because I couldn't take it anymore. I still thought that they were right, but something was wrong with me. So I figured, I don't know, I'll probably die. They, they, they warn you, you know, you, you become mentally diseased, the devil will get a hold of you, you become the worst person imaginable. So I was really f afraid. Um, but, and I was really, really lonely because in my phone, the only phone number I had had, um, I had been a missionary for Jehovah's Witnesses, but they don't pay you. This is volunteer work. So I worked as a sign language interpreter freelance, and I just took jobs, you know, to support my missionary work. And I had spent my whole life doing this, so and what are you supposed to do at that point? I looked in my phone, and there was no phone numbers other than the agency that I had been freelancing with for about 10 years. You know, that's a real moment of truth when you're sitting there going, fuck, I don't Anybody, I literally don't know anybody, right? So I figured, yeah, I'll call them. I call them up. Hey, Mary, Kathleen. Uh, so I explained what happened. They knew me when I was a teenager, so I think they always kind of felt bad for me. So, okay, well, that's good that you left. Okay, but you don't understand. What that means is, and I explained to them, so you need to hire me. This is a temp kind of agency, and they're like, well, we don't have full-time jobs. Okay, you need to hire me. Because I feel like if I don't have something stable, I'm going to fall apart. I don't, I don't know what to do with myself. So they hired me. I was the worst employee ever. S didn't show up for work. Forgot things. You know, I was severely depressed. Um, I started feeling I would go for days without talking to people. Right? And then I realized, oh, my God, I don't really know how to make friends. I don't really know how to communicate with worldly people. I was kind of afraid of them. Right? I, I didn't know. I didn't have any of those skills. So... Um, I figured, I know what I'll do. I'll go to a club. Right, that's what worldly people do, right? They go to clubs. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, so uh, to contextualize this, I got married when I was 23 as a virgin. It was the only girl I had ever dated. Right? And I had only been alone with this woman. It's the only woman I had ever been alone with other than a relative. And I'm in the club, right? It's like lights are blaring, you know. <laughs> it's like bodies are moving. Uh, I swear it was raining inside because everybody's like flipping their hair. And I'm just like, right? So I was, when I was listening to Steve, I was like, he's pretty cool compared to how I felt. I was just like, oh my God. But it, so it was too much. It was, it was really awkward. <laughs> I ended up like hanging out with some older women and we had fun and left and was like, I 
this is not, this is too much for me. So I started hanging out at the Barnes and Noble that had a Starbucks. <laughs> Gotta take it slow, right? <laughs> um, and I slowly made friends, and eventually I met someone. We had a daughter together. Um, started rebuilding my life, but I was, I had lost a, a purpose. Like, I, I liked what I was doing. I liked working with people. I like listening to people. I'm good at that. Um, and I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to replace it. So I started feeling like I was going crazy and I got very depressed. Um, I actually started shaking, like I'm probably shaking right now, but I'm talking seizure level shaking anytime I got emotional because the trauma was so bad, the loneliness was so bad, and the lack of purpose. And um, I remember one of my exes telling her, like, I, I'm going to lose my mind if I don't do something. I need to do something with this brain of mine because the brain is just not doing what I want to do. Um, one day I was interpreting at a conference and this woman had a slide up, had a picture of a brain on it. And she's talking about trauma in the classroom and all of the behaviors she was talking about with children. I was like, that's what I, you know, impulsive, unable to control emotions, um, all these other things. I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's me. This explains my behavior. But then she went on to explain how different parts of the brain, you know, there's a part of the brain that'll affect your ability to control your emotions. Um, and with trauma, sometimes that's interrupted, and so you can't control your emotions anymore. And this, for me, was like, uh, you know, like a new understanding of, of myself and of life. And I thought to myself, that's it. That's what I want to do. That makes a lot of sense to me. I can, I can use this to help myself, and I can use this to help others. So in a couple of years, I actually applied and started as an undergrad at 33 years old. I had never gone to college. I, I look really young, so that was, it, was, it was good. And I studied neuroscience. Um, learned a lot about the brain, and eventually in my master's program decided I want to do something about everything I learned. So I, I, I'm in a PhD program now for clinical psychology, and I work as a trauma therapist. So I spend many, many hours, thousands of hours at this point, um, in a similar situation where I'm sitting with someone and they're being very vulnerable with me, and I'm using the power that they've granted me, you know, to manipulate them, really, hopefully for good, right? That's the goal. Um, and I, I've struggled a lot with like how to end this story. And so it really comes home. And I think the problem is I'm really unsettled about how weird life can be sometimes. You know, I have this moment with this person where I've deprived them of, of love because of who they are. And that completely changed my life. Eventually, my identity became the problem with the people that were supposed to love me, right? And, and so I, I feel that in a way that I never felt it before. Um, so I decided to stop depriving people of that. But that's not anything special or great, right? The, the debt was incurred already, right? So it's, it's not special, but it's weird. It's, life can be weird that way. It's like I, I gained so much from this. And I guess the thing, if, if he was here, I would say, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I, I was being sincere, I didn't know. But I don't know what happened with him. I'll never know what happened with him. I can't apologize. Right? What I can do is, is, is remember that everything I do now, where it came from. It started there, and it always lives with me here, and it shaped who I am. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for, for that.
was Manny Garcia. Manny is an indigenous, black, Latino, psychological scientist practitioner, a passionate science communicator, a sign language interpreter, a group fitness instructor, a certified holistic yoga teacher, a statistics educator, a filmmaker, an artist, a writer, a musician, and cult survivor living in Queens, New York. Wow, Manny, you are busy. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> While completing his PhD in clinical psychology at CUNY John Jay, Manny is focused on developing his recently launched wellness capacity building movement, hashtag joy for L. The Story Collider is so grateful to Len and to Manny. We are also so grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director Liz Neely. We couldn't do any of this without the help of our Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, our Operations Support Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Miriam Zaringhollum, Shane Hanlon, Tracy Rowland, and Paula Croxon. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Zoe Saunders, John Chen, and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Beer Bear and Tavern and The Tank for hosting these shows. And to Qantas Airline for confusing whatever sense of time I had left remaining in me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.